Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm today joined by Mark Annand who is the Managing Director of Blueprint Partners, a communications agency right here in London delivering digital solutions, events and video and internal communications. Mark, welcome to the programme. It's great to have you on with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic, Mark. Um, now, first and foremost, this podcast is all about leadership and effective leadership at that. But what does that word leader actually mean to you, first and foremost? I think uh, it comes from wherever your background has been. And I started my career in film and television. So there's a great quote by Ridden Scott, who's, who was once asked what it's like to make a movie. And I think he said something along the lines of uh, directing movies, being asked if you're right like red or blue, a hundred times a day. And depending on your answer, the film will turn out all red or will turn out all blue. And I think that's, uh, for me, what leadership is all about. It's about surrounding yourself by strong, creative, talented people, getting a vision uh, of where you want to get to, letting um, them or working with them to bring options, and ultimately um, having a point where you can point everyone in the direction that you think you should go with the information that you've got uh, around you. Um, and all the while communicating and, and kind of building a team and a culture. And I think those are the things that, you know, for me, really sum up what leadership is. Absolutely. It's um, all about remembering that it's the collective just as much as the individual, because being a leader is not just a one man or one woman operation, is it? It's about surrounding yourself with individuals who you can get the best out of, but also they can get the best out of you as well, isn't it? It's just as much about them. Yeah, and I think it's really important as well to make sure, you know, as, as a leader, I think you have to understand where your strengths and where your weaknesses are. So I have some significant weaknesses in my character and, and uh, around attention to detail and data and finance some of the times, and I try to surround myself with people who are very good at those elements. And um, equally, you know, where I probably excel is by, by being disruptive and, and pushing the envelope of where you want to be, and you have to be able to take people with you. It's no point. Um, you know, declaring that we're going to go over here and do this if, if the, the people you're with have no clue that's where your vision was or can't see where it came from. You need to communicate well with them and play to each other's strengths and weaknesses. Nobody's going to be great at everything. Uh, and then just be really clear about where it is we're trying to get to and why we're trying to get there. And then people will understand and find ways of supporting you. Absolutely right. And um, it's quite easy, of course, to talk about um, leadership when things are harmonious within a business. But it is important to remember that human beings do have limitations. Human beings are fallible. And sometimes there is inevitably conflict in the workplace as a result of that. How do you as a leader go about dealing with such conflict? Um, I think with conflict, it's about really understanding why we're here and what are we trying to do and and really understanding where people's interests lie. Why are they rejecting uh, something out of hand? Why is someone putting up a barrier? What is someone's interest that they're protecting? Is it that they are concerned about their area of the business? Is it they are concerned about how it reflects on, on them? And I think once you once you understand the interest that people are trying to protect, you can then dissect it or paint a different interest, which is what our interest is. And you know, clearly, coronavirus is a massive topic at the moment, and it's mm-hmm. something that we've had to, to deal with, um, you know, probably some of the most complex bits of leadership we've ever had to deal with within the last uh, four weeks. Um, and I think by being really clear about, I understand everyone is nervous, I understand there are concerns, I understand there are a lot of things that are outside of control, this is what we're trying to achieve, 
and this is the data that we have, and therefore this is the decision, these are the decisions we're making. Everyone may or may not agree with them, but you can't argue with the logic but, and, and the clarity in which we're putting the position across. I think you're absolutely right in uh, what you say there, Mark. And uh, what's interesting as well is that uh, this whole COVID-19 crisis, as you mentioned, um, it has really brought under the microscope, if you will, this importance of striking a balance between being proactive and also being able to be reactive as a business as well, hasn't it? Because guidelines are changing and businesses need to be able to adapt to that and move with those changing times, as well as having sort of plans in place, contingency measures in place and being proactive as well. Um, So has it been a challenge for yourselves at Blueprint to try and strike that balance? Or would you say that you've kind of dealt with that quite well? I think in retrospect, we're very pleased with how we have navigated our, our way through it. At the time, it didn't feel like that. And um, there are some things that proactively, you know, we've been gearing ourselves up for a long time uh, in terms of disaster recovery and the ability to completely uh, shut the office and remote work. But they weren't because we saw coronavirus coming, um, but coronavirus providers with the, the opportunity to test our plans and make sure they were in place. But equally, we couldn't possibly have seen all of the complications and impacts it's had. We're a client-led business. We go where our clients lead, and most of our clients uh, have been affected quite substantially uh, through their income dropping through coronavirus, and marketing services are an easy uh, place to, to stop spend if you need to. Uh, that has had implications for our business, so we have had to um, deal with those as they come in. We have to have very... Um, very complex conversations with, multi, with lots of different stakeholders um, and try to be really clear about what it is we're trying to protect. I also feel that with leadership, you need to be very, um, you need to be okay with changing your mind as the circumstances change around you. And that's never been tested more than in the last four weeks. Mm. We got to a point where I actually said to the business, I feel sometimes politicians are given a hard time because um they will decide a course of action. There will be a lot of comments around them about, oh, well, actually, the data supports a different type of action. And then when they choose to change their action, they're accused of doing a U-turn. And I don't think a U-turn is necessarily a, a poor decision to make if the data uh, or the situation around you has changes. And, and we had to do several of those in the last four weeks where we would make a decision on a Friday based on the information we had. The Chancellor would make uh, a statement Friday evening, and on Monday we're revising that situation, that decision based on the information that's come to light. It would have been easier to stay the course and go, we've made that decision, we're going to stick with it. But actually, um, what I think I was really proud of in terms of the leadership team was our ability to look at it and go, actually, I know we made that last week, I know we communicated that last week, this is a different day, these are different sets of data, we're still heading for the same end goal, which is survival and and profitability long-term as a business. But today we're going to change our mind on, on these decisions because we have new information and new options open to us. You make a very interesting point there, Mark, about U-turns um, being a leader as well, because it's important to remember that um, leaders are under a tremendous amount of pressure from people around them to, of course, make decisions and fundamentally get those decisions right. But a leader isn't going to be right every single time, are they? They are going to get things wrong and sometimes have to change tact, learn from errors and make U-turns. Would you say with that in mind that it's possible to actually be a good leader without first making mistakes and then learning from them? Or is that something that just has to happen? No, I think that you make mistakes over the course of your career and that gives you a knowledge bank of things you can learn from and I would do differently next time if, if faced with those situations. Um, I think that 
you know, there are some leaders who seem to get everything right, but I think they make decisions based within a set parameters that you set, and whether it's the culture of the business or the mission statement of the organization. I think if you're making decisions within the parameters and within, almost using that as a lens, every decision we make is with this in mind. And we've been really clear on, you know, the last with coronavirus, we have laid out for the first day we had to work remotely. Um, these are the principles by which we're going to guide the organization through, uh, through this uh, period of time. And we've repeated those principles on a daily basis. And uh, a friend of mine who, who leads a very large company once said to me that his company updates are the most boring thing on the planet because he just repeats the same strategy again and again and again. Uh, and it's never a surprise because the strategy is solid and, and sound. And he wants his team, they shouldn't be chopping and changing surprises. And I felt a bit like that in the last uh, couple of weeks that every day we've been saying, these are the principles that are guiding our decisions. And any decision we make is guided by these principles. And if we then change our decision, well, it's because we're still trying to meet these principles. And that can be your culture or it can be a short-term tactical um, strategy. But I think as long as you are clear as, look, this is what we are trying to do. And being really honest, we have a, a classic example at the moment. We have an ongoing debate in our business today about what we do with people who are accruing holiday while they are stuck working from home and they can't travel anywhere. Um, and we've been completely transparent with the business to say, this is a challenge that we have. We are trying to find a fair way that protects the business so not everybody takes their entire holiday allowance in the last two months of the year, um, but also is fair on the individuals. And I appreciate people can't go traveling or, or, or you know, might not want to take time off where they're stuck at home. Uh, and we put it out to the business and said, look, we're listening to any decisions, any ideas and suggestions you have. Fundamentally, it will come down to us making a decision that we think is the best one we can do in the circumstances we have. But I think that if you abide by the principles which is we're trying to do the best we can for everybody and the organization then making mistakes is part of it but there's a lot of forgiveness from the team if they understand why you've made certain decisions I think you're absolutely right uh, there, Mark, in uh, saying that. And if we look at the uh, the future now and uh, the next 12 months um, through the COVID-19 outbreak and beyond that, um, what do you hope to really achieve as a collective at Blueprint Partners? And what do you imagine that the next 12 months holds for yourself and the business? Well, I think it's an interesting question given the scenario we find ourselves in right now. If you'd asked me that question three months ago, I could have been incredibly clear about our continued global expansion, about our... Um, partnering with clients and, and the clients we're looking to, to onboard and, and the, uh, the uh, augmentation of the services that we already deliver. Um, I think all of those things hold true, but uh, our focus has shifted. Well, it has and it hasn't. It's shifted to fundamentally job number one is to ensure that we, the business survives in as, uh, in as good health as possible with our ability to uh, continue to deliver for our partners with uh, protecting as many uh, jobs as possible through this crisis. And I think the worst of the crisis actually is to come. I think the, from a business point of view, the exiting um, uh, the lockdown presents almost more challenges than getting into the lockdown because uh, there will be a period of time where government support will come to an end and yet client sales probably haven't um, off, uh, haven't increased uh, as fast as we would need. So that is certainly a challenge that's to come. I think after that, we look longer term and we're using this opportunity to retrain and reskill and to get all the pieces of work done that, that never you never get around to in, in the business as usual. Um, and I think that we'll probably, at the end of this, need to revise our, our forecast, as I think many businesses will, you know, in terms of 12 months and, and beyond, 
what it what is the long term future of, of our business look like? And a lot of that will depend on where we get to as a global community, uh, where there are a, a, you know, and what the state of the world is, and, and where you know the economy gets to at the end of this. Exactly right. And um, I think it would be fantastic, Mark, um, and then perhaps a few months time when um, this has all uh, been borne out a little bit more and we know what's going on to perhaps even have you back on the programme to look at this retrospectively and just see how things have panned out and to see if they've just really fallen in line with uh, what you've just uh, spoken to me about there. Um, But for now, I have to say it's been a really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the benefit of the listeners. It's been fantastic. It's been really insightful, Mark, and thank you so much again for coming on. Um, Coming up next on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. As well as scoring over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, Sir Jeff remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany 54 long years ago. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Jeff, and that's coming up next. Uh, We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over the years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite 
purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager obviously like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the talent of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence. On me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was 
quite ruthless about him and his staff. And I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So mm-hmm. I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, Jeff, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. 
Well, I, I, did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and say, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or 400 people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but no, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did... Uh, um, and again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe 
uh, it has a, a helpful effect. But I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, the play, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely—you've mm. got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this over a period of time, you know, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they—they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again it's absolutely astonishing astonishing and do you think could you imagine uh sir alf or even ron greenwood managing teams today yes i think so i think yes no Mm. no question at all i think they uh ron greenwood yeah the answer straightforward answer is yes um (laughs) the straightforward answer is yes i can elaborate as much as you want but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that, struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned. Uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. 
and there was nobody. And I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. It, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't... And when, it, when you put those, those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is showed. team. The word is te- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, Thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organization. And I think that's. You're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.